Titus chapter 2. Twelve years ago, Castle Rock Entertainment released a movie that still makes me laugh to this day every time I see snippets of it. Miss Congeniality. Some of you remember this Sandra Bullock movie where uh, she was kind of this homely looking, you know, rough around the edges FBI agent and she got uh, pulled in to do an undercover operation at like a Miss USA pageant or something. And and so it just cracked me up because of all the people in the unit, this is the one person you'd think she could not do undercover at a beauty pageant. But so they bring in a beauty consultant, Mr. Vic, if you remember this movie, to to do a transformation and they take they rush her off to a secret warehouse and they do this overnight transformation and you're thinking, oh there's no way. And uh, and so after all night of working on her, making her this beauty queen, she comes out the uh, the hangar doors come open and she starts strutting herself. And you know, the sassy music starts and, and she's strutting her stuff and her long flowing hair and all the agents are looking at her like, whoa, where did this come from? And she's got the high heels and, and the walk and the whole thing. And as she gets closer to the camera, all of a sudden the music goes, Rrr! And she falls out of the frame because she tripped on her high heels, you know? And it's just this great picture. She knew uh, she looked the part... <laughs> But she didn't know how to act the part. And that's part of, uh, in the movie, Mr. Vic's transformation, is that he made her look like a beauty queen. Now he had to teach her to act like one. Frankly, I think many Christians can relate to miscongeniality. Uh, we understand that the gospel is great news, but we don't always understand that the gospel is designed to transform the way we live. The gospel is designed to transform the way we live. We don't understand this sometimes. Many of us need sort of a Mr. Vic in our life, a consultant, a trainer, a trainer to teach us how to live in light of the gospel. And today, I'm here to tell you that you already have a trainer. You already have a trainer. You already have a consultant, and that consultant is the gospel. In, in Christ, we're his children through this beautiful gospel. And now the gospel wants to do this transforming work in our life. Today, we want to talk about living out the beautiful gospel in a godless world. Last week, if you remember, we talked uh, specifically about the way we live. That in the way we live, we bring out the beauty of the gospel. And, and this week, we saw that the, we bring out the beauty in the gospel. And, and what I want to kind of look at this week is the opposite. We, it's true, the way we live makes the gospel look beautiful. But it's also true that the gospel makes us beautiful. The gospel makes us beautiful because it teaches us how to live. Today, this passage in Titus chapter 2 teaches us all about Jesus. And even though... Jesus' name isn't necessarily specifically mentioned in, this, uh, in the first part of this passage. You can see that this passage is all about Jesus. You know, on a side note, um, it's our desire that this church be about Jesus. If anyone would ask you, what's Waukee Community Church about? I hope that your response would be, it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus it's only about Jesus, and it's always about Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the focal point of this church. 
The glory of this church is for the glory of Jesus so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every time we sing, every time we listen to God's Word, it's all about Jesus. God's Word points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And in this passage in Titus, we see Jesus mentioned pretty clearly two times. Two times we see him mentioned here. And the first one isn't as clear as the second one. But the first one is in verse 11. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. It's appeared. There's the first one. And so, really, the gospel is like bookends. This passage has two bookends and then a middle section. And the bookends are kind of like, uh, are all about Jesus. The first bookend has to do with his incarnation. The grace of God's appeared. It's appeared to all men. The grace of God has appeared. That's the incarnation. That refers to when God became one of us in Jesus. And then the other bookend in this passage is in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of Jesus. So on the one end of this passage is talking about the incarnation when Jesus became one of us. He took on human form. In the other end of this passage, we're looking and we're seeing about looking forward to the physical return of Jesus. On the one end, it's the incarnation. Jesus' salvation, the grace of God has appeared. It's appeared. The incarnation is when Jesus the second person of the Trinity set aside all the rights and privileges that he had to be God. And he willingly set aside those rights. There's so much we can learn from the incarnation about the way we live with each other in community. It's not about my rights. We're supposed to live as Jesus lived. We set aside our rights. We pursue Christ-likeness. He set aside his rights. He didn't cease to be God, but Jesus added a human nature. There was no, Jesus wasn't a hybrid. He wasn't half God, half man. He was both God and he was fully man at the same time. And Jesus came for everyone. Look what the passage says. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Man is the word anthropos. There, here in this context, it has the idea of all people. So specifically, what does this mean? Well, this isn't universalism. Jesus hasn't just, you know, come and therefore everyone is saved. What, what this has to do with this is this idea that faith in Jesus is essential to salvation. People certainly must believe. And in the context here, in the context of Titus, we had all these Judaizers. We looked at this in the past weeks. And the Judaizers are saying, no, the gospel has really come for the Jews. And so if you want to be a believer, you have to become a Jew first and obey all the Jewish things. And then you can be a believer in Jesus. And Paul is saying, no, salvation comes to everyone. Jesus loves all races. Jesus loves all kinds of people. Salvation comes to all people. If you're a human being, if you've sinned, Jesus is for you. The gospel call, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, will you? This is the gospel call. The gospel call is for you. I'm not foolish enough to believe that every single person here has a saving faith in Jesus. If you have not surrendered your life, understood that you are a sinner and the gospel is good news for you because Jesus came in your place. And if you haven't surrendered your life to him, would you do it today? Would you be reconciled to God today? This is the incarnation. It's bookend number one. It's this grace of God because he loves us and it's appeared to all men. 
to all people, to everyone, every race, every person. The other bookend then is the, is the triumphant return. You know, as believers in Christ, we look forward to Jesus coming back. We look forward to this. Jesus is really coming back. He's really going to appear in the sky. It's not a myth. He's going to set the, right, the wrongs right. He's going to make us like him. And you know, frankly, there are days where, and I know you do too, where I just long for the return of Jesus, you know? Come back. I mean, I used to think, oh, Jesus, don't come back till I have kids or till I'm married or don't come back till my kids grow up and have kids. Jesus, hold on, don't come back. And the older I get, the more I just say, Lord, come back because this world's messed up and I'm crying out and I'm longing for the return of the king to set the wrongs right. And there are just days where I long for him to come back. And that is a good thing. And as believers, we should long for the return of Jesus. Titus chapter 2 is about bookends. On the one end with the incarnation, on the other end we have his, we're looking to his return. What I want to talk about today is what happens in the middle. In the middle of those two bookends. What happens? In verse 13, Paul points us to this. He teaches us, the gospel is going to tutor us, to train us in something, while we wait for this blessed hope this glorious appearance, while we wait. Those three words could really take the crooks of this message because in between the incarnation and the return of Jesus is while we wait. In between them is this period that we are in while we wait. Sanctification is the word that describes this. You know, if, on one hand, if you uh, talk about the theological terms, we talk about justification, and that is as the justice or the righteousness of Christ being applied to us through the death of Jesus on the cross. And so when we come through a faith in Jesus, when we come to believe in him, and when we're justified with God, we're reconciled to him. And then when one day, when Jesus returns, we'll be made like Christ. We'll We'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. And so one day we'll be like him and he's coming back and he's going to make us. And that's the glorification, justification, glorification. In the middle, sanctification. We are in the process of being made like Christ. And this is tough because frankly, in the church together, sometimes this is hard to live out and be patient with each other. It's hard to be patient while sanctification happens. We want everyone to be glorified. Come on. You know better. Let's act like this together. We want everyone to be glorified, but it's this process that we enter and it's messy and it's painful sometimes and we hurt each other, but then we see these great, awesome, amazing ways that we're becoming more like Jesus. We're not like him yet. We're beings made holy, sanctified. We are being made like Jesus. And while we wait, he transforms us. And it's this waiting that I want to talk about today. In between the bookends, while we wait, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, teaches us how to live. It's a trainer. This is the word training. Look at the text. The grace of God, it's the gospel, Jesus, the incarnation, it's appeared to all men. It, the grace, it refers to the grace of God, this gospel, Jesus, it teaches us, the gospel message teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us. It's training us. A teach and train are the same word there. It's training us. This is the good news of Jesus. It's training us. You know, 
I've never, I've never really, really had the experience of having a one-on-one -on -one personal trainer. You know, that's a kind of a rage right now, personal trainers. And uh, I've never had one kick my butt like that. And I think I know what a trainer would be like, which is probably why I don't want to do it. But, you know, I mean, they're all the rage, personal trainers. And that's the idea of a personal trainer. Someone to one-on-one, -on -one, get in your life and say, listen, your physical exercise stinks. And so let's get, you know, and they drive you and they make you do stuff that hurts and, and it's painful and we're, and we're going to crack the whip and we're going to train you. A trainer is, personal trainer is relentless at teaching skills necessary for physical fitness. The gospel is the same. The gospel is relentless at teaching us skills for living out the gospel, for being sanctified. And so the gospel as our trainer today, I want you to see it's doing two things. And we're, while we're in this process of being sanctified, the gospel is doing two things. And the text is going to point us to these. The gospel is doing two things. First of all, it's teaching us to renounce something. It's training us to renounce something. And then second, we'll, we'll see a little later that it's teaching us to embrace someone, but something. So renounce, embrace. So let's look at training way number one here. It teaches us to renounce something. The gospel teaches us to renounce. Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. Some other versions say it teaches us to renounce. I like that word renounce. We're making a stated claim. No longer will I live this way. Now I will live this way. Renounce, say goodbye. Literally it means refuse to agree with it anymore. I renounce it. Renounce ungodliness. There are two things we should renounce, and that's the first one. You can see it up there on the screen behind me. The first thing it teaches us to renounce is ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Ungodliness is living with no consideration for God. Ungodliness is living with no consideration for God. Look, ungodliness means I refuse to take into account the gospel's implication for my life. Ungodly living is pervasive in our culture. You know, at first glance, you might not think so. You might think, well, you know, we're on the west side in the suburbs, and we have a, you know, a pretty moral culture, you know, here. Like, people are good and generally nice to each other and, you know, whatever. But ungodliness is living without consideration for God. In our culture, in our culture, I like to call this churchy. That's my own word. I made it up. Churchy. We live in a churchy culture. You know, most people you know, your name, I mean, certainly you run into some that, you know, don't ever attend church or don't believe in Jesus at all. But most people would say, do you go to church anywhere? And they would say, yes, I attend. And then, you know, church. So I identify this as my church. Now, what that means is <laughs> different for different people. But for most of our culture, what that means is I'm looking for a place where I can pop a squat twice a month, find a nice place in a chair. I got my nice programs in for my kids. I attended and I did something good for God. So God, you should be proud because I attended a service today. I made a big sacrifice for you because it was awful. And then the rest of my life is mine. I think that's churchy. I've added church to my life. And God, you should be pleased because I gave you, you know, an hour and 15 minutes and uh, a couple times a month. And this week, you should be pleased with me because I did that. And the rest of mine is, is, my life is mine. I'll live how I want. So my conduct, my marriage, my kids, my neighbors, my relationships with my friends, all that stuff. Don't ask to get involved in that, God. 
You know, uh, yeah, I did my stuff. And this is what our, the message of our culture. And our culture says, don't expect my church to be an authority in my life because I gave my two hours to God this week and that should make God happy. You can be a nice person and still be an ungodly person because you fail to give God any consideration in how you live your life. You can do that. You can appear to be nice and still be ungodly because godliness is giving consideration to God in every aspect of your life. We're supposed to renounce ungodliness. That's the second thing we're supposed to renounce. We're supposed to renounce worldly passions. There is a way of living that when we give God consideration in every aspect of our life from the, our private time when we're all by ourselves to our work time, to our family, to, you know, our community life, to whatever, there's a way of living when we get God consideration for everything that then we renounce what the world desires. The gospel calls us to something more than the passions of this world. Jesus said it this way. He said, you can't serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other, you'll love the one and hate the other. You can't do two. Specifically, he was talking about you can't serve God and money in that one. The world desires passions and the world says, I've earned the right to pursue this. But when we renounce ungodliness and we give God consideration for every aspect of our life, we embrace him in every way and we renounce worldly passions. We live in a culture that's obsessed with sexuality. We are in a sex-obsessed culture. Now, this might embarrass some of you, but I'm all for sex, right? I think sex is great. I like sex a lot. I say that in all my premarital counseling sessions, and it makes everybody feel awkward, and I love it. This was God's design, okay? This was God's design. Yeah, everyone's really uncomfortable right now. Okay, so this is God's design. Sex is his design. He designed it. He put it together, and I'm all for it. He wants it the best way in marriage. But our culture says, no, 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 no. If it feels good, do it. It doesn't matter. I heard one person say, God gave me these desires for someone other than my spouse. That's a lie. It's not true. They said, these were God's given desires. If they're, my, if they're desires, they must be from him. They must be good. No, that's the message of our culture. It's ungodly. It's worldly passions. It's do what I want. We have the nerve to call God's sin, God's plan for our lives. I, I sat in a premarital counseling session with a couple. It was the first one. Sometimes people call me and, you know, occasionally I get this, this uh, call that, you know, says, hey, Dave, you know, I, you were my youth pastor like forever ago now. <laughs> the gray hair shows that. And, uh, you know, I know you didn't really know me very well because I never really came to youth group or anything, but hey, that's okay. Would you do my wedding? And I always say to them, hey, let's sit down and talk. And so I sat down with this one couple <laughs> and I said, well, first of all, I got a question for you. Tell me about your spiritual life. And they said, well, we go to church and occasionally and, and we would, and I said, would you consider yourself a follower, a Christian, a follower of Jesus? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, we're, we're Christians. Okay. I said, well, now tell me about your sex life. And so, uh, the, <laughs> the 
fiance was the kid that I had in youth group, and, and the girl he was married to had never met me before. And, and so she goes into this flowery description of their sex life, and just how amazing it was, and how beautiful, and how they complete each other, and there's just this wonderful stuff. And, and I'm just, I'm going, ah. And so I said, well, you know what? That's awesome. That, that it's great. But here's the deal. That's not God's plan for your life. I said, if you want to follow Jesus, Jesus has a different picture for what your sex life should look like. And he says he wants you to wait until you're married. And then I walked walk through the scriptures and I show them this. I'm showing them from God's word. And she is looking at me. I, I'm not kidding you. Her mouth is open like, what planet are you from? It's just the way, and he's looking at me like this, like, oh, crap, I should have known Dave was going to say this. What did I do? You know? And so we met for about 45 minutes. They got up. They were out of there. I never saw them again. You know? I mean, because they were saying, I don't want this. I have worldly passions that I would like to pursue, and I'd like to put God's, you to put God's blessing, his stamp of blessing upon what I want to do. Another premarital I had, this was a couple I didn't know at all, and they'd just come to be followers of Christ recently. And so I was working through uh, counseling with them, and, and I asked them the same two questions, and then I, and in kind of the same responses, but when I explained to them what God's plan was for their intimate life, they looked at me and they said, well, Dave, here's the deal. I see it from God's word, what you're talking about. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to us, but if God tells us to do it, we'll do it. And so for the next four months, they lived by God's plan. They renounced their worldly desires. Some of us need to renounce worldly passions. You know, guys, some of the stuff you're looking at, 60%, the last report I saw, 60% of Christian men regularly look at pornography. That's a lot. 60%. Guys, what you doing when you do, and 20% of women. Like that, that's just mind-blowing to me. When you do this, you are saying, what God designed for my marriage isn't enough for me. I have a worldly passion and I would like to fulfill my desires outside of this. Some of you are slaves to this and you know what I'm talking about. It's a worldly passion. Stop it. Find your passion in your spouse. Some of you have come across this book, Fifty Shades of Grey, which I have just read reviews on, and it's apparently awful. And so, but it's popular, and, you know, can we read this stuff? And, it, and it's just porn for women is all I can basically describe it as. And it's basically saying, you know what, my husband... He's not romantic enough for me. My husband doesn't meet the needs that I have emotionally, and so it's okay for me to fantasize somewhere else about this stuff. And that's just wrong. It's a worldly passion. Sports. I love sports. I love it. The Bears won last night in a preseason game. You know, I was very excited. I love baseball. I can never get excited about the Cubs recently, so we just don't talk. You notice they haven't been making every sermon for a while. Um, you know, I love sports, and I, I just enjoy it. And, you know, I think they're God's gift to me to just <laughs> give me something to enjoy, and it's great. But there can be a worldly—I mean, everything's in balance, right? Can sports become a worldly passion? 
Yes. Can it become an idol? Yes. Technology. I was talking to someone this week. That it's like, I just realized that rather than spending time with my kids, I'm escaping into my smartphone. And, you know, he was just talking about how that's changing his life. And God is changing him in this. I mean, that's renouncing worldly passions. It's saying, Jesus, I'm inviting you into every area of my life. You get everyone. Every area. Renounce worldly passions because the gospel is too important. Worldly passions are the wrong purpose. The gospel does teach us to renounce things. It teaches us to say no. But it also teaches us to embrace something. Training way number two, embrace. Training way number two, embrace. Look, let's go back to to Titus chapter 2. So the grace of God has appeared to all men. It's our trainer. This gospel teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passage, pass, passions. And then it trains us to do a second thing, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It teaches us to renounce some things, but then embrace some things. The gospel is a trainer. Now it's going to train us what to do. The first word here is self-controlled. Self-controlled. The gospel is going to train us to live a self-controlled life. Dan, you can put that next slide up there. Self-controlled life. It's going to teach us to live self-controlled. This comes from the Holy Spirit. I, I have said this in a couple of sermons recently because God is really moving in my heart in this way. Um, and as I read his scripture, you know, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did I miss one? I think I got them all. Self-control. Self it's a fruit of the Spirit. We can try harder and try harder and try harder to be more self-controlled, but ultimately it's a gift from God. We embrace the gospel and we embrace the Spirit moving and working in our lives and we develop self-control. The trainer is developing this in us. This comes from the Spirit. The self-control says, I'm not going to do, I, I'm going to not do what I want because I believe something better is out there. My kids recently are getting old enough where they can earn some money. And uh, I picked up this idea from the Greers. I love it. Uh, they have a family list. And if they, they want something, if you have a desire for something, you put it on the list. So, two weeks, you guys keep it there? What is it? On the list? Four weeks. Okay, I, Wow, that's, that's bold. Uh, I, I, I told my kids two weeks, 14 days. Uh, if you want something, put it on the list. If it can stay there for just two weeks, then you can go buy it. it, it it's a way of developing self-control, you know? And so you, know, you have to have the money. You can't borrow the money and you have to earn it. And you have to have first put money in your savings and put money in your giving back to God and, and, uh, and make sure you have enough money to do all the things you want to do. But if you have the money and it's there for two weeks, it's just a way of developing self-control. Some of us could learn from, from that, you know? Our world says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Have you noticed when you shop and you go in the aisle, what are the, shop, the grocery store? While you're checking out, they have impulse spending items right there for you. I mean, that's like their last chance to say, do it. You need it. You know you want it. You'll feel better when you have it. It's like, like I wish I could cover them up when they're checking out, you know? It's impulse. 
Who cares whether you can afford it? Who cares whether it's good for you? Who cares whether God wants you to have it? Just buy it. You'll feel better. Self-control says I'm going to say no to something because I believe there's something better. It's delayed gratification. There's something better. There's, there's a way to live where we just embrace in many areas just what we want right now. And God is asking us, the gospel teaches us to be self-controlled. It also teaches us to be upright, to live upright. You and I should be, embrace the kind of living that is correct and just. You know, um, that's what upright means, living and embracing a life that's just and correct. So when we understand that when we believe in Jesus, the, the righteousness of Christ, all of his righteousness is applied to my life. So when I understand that I'm justified, I'm made right with God, now I need to seek that for others. There is a way of living upright or justly. There's a correct way to live as a follower of Jesus. There's a correct way to live in community. There's a correct way to live. It's pursuing what's right. It's saying no. You know, sometimes we uh, as Christians are really great at gossip, you know. And what we do is we hurt other people. We do actually pursue injustice when we gossip. Now, gossip is never, I mean, no one ever, no Christian ever goes, well, I think I'm going to go gossip today. No, 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 no. We couch it in nice terms or concern or we couch it in terms of, I, you know, I was going to go right to this person and talk to him, but, you know, like, um, I just need to vent, bounce this off like seven people first. And then once I get all those seven, I mean, it's just, God, it, we spiritualize our behavior. And there's this point where we say, I'm going to live upright. I'm going to pursue what is just for me and for others. That's one example. Another way we live justly is when we look for people in our culture who have not been given justice. And when we say, I will stand in and I will pursue justice on their behalf. Um, I saw a blog this week. Um, Aaron, you had posted it. Joy, I think you posted it too about a, a certain preacher that basically said that, you know, uh, international adoption, and he just really criticized the idea. And, you know, it was, very, it was a very offensive article. And I just, I thought, wow, there are believers out there that don't really care about justice, about saying, I will rescue someone that the world has just thrown aside and embrace it. Upright living is this kind of living. It's saying in community, I will consider others more important than myself. I will live self-controlled and I will live uprightly. I will embrace this kind of living. And then there's godly living. That's the third thing he says. Oh, I'm running out of time. All right. So uh, the opposite of ungodly is godly. If ungodly is not giving God consideration in every area of our life, godly living is the opposite. It's giving Jesus the gospel consideration in how we live. Jesus is not a supplement. It's saying, the gospel says, Jesus, how do I incorporate you into every area of my life? How are you a part of my relationships, my work, my marriage, my family, my friends? It's saying, Jesus, you get to decide how I run my business. You get to decide how I treat my employees or my employer. You get to decide this, Jesus. The gospel has these kinds of implications. Christ redeems us. He owns us. It's how we treat someone we're mad at. It's how we treat someone who's hurt us badly. The gospel gets consideration in everything. 
Jesus sacrificed all, he set aside all his rights and privileges, everything he had as God, Philippians tells us. He, all those rights and privileges, he was still God. At any moment he could have said, Satan even tempted it this way, and at any moment he could have said on the cross, hey, you know, come on, God, bring your angels, take me down from here, I'm tired of this. But he didn't. He sacrificed his rights and privileges, and godliness is consideration in every aspect of our life. It teaches us what how Christ redeems us. He owns us. We must consider him in everything we do. To this end, I want to uh, wrap up our time uh, with a, a testimony. Because as I think about the gospel implications for our life, this works out in so many ways. And so I wanted to ask Doug McCone, I asked him in advance if he'd come on up here and stand next to me. Because I want Doug to share a little bit about First of all, how he came to know the gospel. And then about some of the recent implications of the gospel in his life. So come here, I'm going to give you this. You. And so um, I just got some questions. He's written some notes because uh, Doug's thorough and, uh, and I appreciate that. No, it's forgetful. <laughs> so, but, okay, so Doug, first of all, let's just kind of start. Let's just go back with your story a little bit so we can bring everyone up to speed. Um, what was your life like? And maybe specifically kind of your thought process before you became a believer, before you embraced this gospel. What was that like? Okay, well, first of all, I did grow up in the church from, you know, the time I was born till, well, you know, growing up. Uh, I never did make the faith my own, though. You know, I, it was my parents' faith. I was just kind of along for the ride. I assumed my salvation based on you know, growing up in the church. Of course I'm a Christian, not to mention the multiple requests that I made for Jesus to come into my heart. Apparently I mistook the second person of the Trinity for the third. <laughs> um, I had my uh, ticket to heaven. That's how I looked at it. Uh, so the way I saw it, I can live my life my way now because, hey, I'm, you know, I got my hand stamped. I can get back into the fair. Well, I uh, indulged in things that I shouldn't have. I chased after girls in ways that are pretty shameful. I was selfish and I was unmotivated. And to be honest with you all, once I got a girl pregnant, I figured the party was over. I might as well marry her. And, you know, part of it was just a financial, you know, hey, this is going to be expensive if I have to go, yeah, you know. So anyway, we started a family. I remained selfish and unmotivated. But my dad, sitting over there, wouldn't just stop talking to me about Jesus and he wouldn't stop getting me to or challenging me to read the Bible through. He even got me a chronological Bible one year for Christmas, which sat on my shelf for quite a few years. Um, I looked to the uh, first 10 uh, verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to kind of go through them as we go through this. Uh, verses 1 through 3, it's kind of like me at this time. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hmm. Okay, so God's moving in your heart in this time, and, and you, at, at some point you responded to this moving. And, and, and tell, us, tell us about this, because it involves veggie tales, and it's really great. Uh, yeah. So. God can do amazing does. things. It actually does. So, okay, so I mentioned earlier that my dad just wouldn't stop, okay? I had this great idea. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. 
that way I can say, Dad, I did what you asked me to do, now just lay off, all right? But how is he going to know that I actually did it? So I came up with this idea of starting a blog, and I also had an email newsletter that I, I put out, subscribed my mom to it, and sent her the email every week. And every day I would read my section of the Bible, and I would post my reaction to it. That way they would know that I'm not just claiming to read it, I actually did it. Well, I don't know exactly what the date was, but at some point in the summer of 2003, I was reading about God rescuing those pesky Israelites again, and I got pretty mad. I, I really did. They didn't deserve another chance. He bailed them out enough times, you know? But then it hit me. If they didn't deserve another second chance, neither did I. All those times throughout the course of my life asking Jesus into my heart, those were my second chances. I never had any peace. So I sat at my desk, and I was, I was in tears. I was, I was pretty messed up. So I, I came to this conclusion that I was going to finish my project, and I was going to tell my dad off, and then I was going to tell God off, and I was going to live the rest of my life however I liked because I was pretty sure that my eternity would be in hell and that my second chances were over. Well, from the next room, I, I hear the VeggieTales video, Jonah. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that one. Remember that song, you know? Our God is the God of second chances. Yeah, that's my joyful noise right there. <laughs> well, that's when it hit me. I hadn't out God's forgiveness. My head lifted up, and I stopped crying. And I got really, really happy and excited. I, I'd never been that happy before in my life, and I honestly don't expect to ever be that happy again until I see Jesus with my own eyes. And I'll tell you, I never did ask Jesus into my heart again. Never. My salvation is based on nothing but the mercy of God revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there are no magic words. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, I continued to, uh, to read and write my thoughts out. had my blog going for quite a while. And, uh, you know, I was, I was new to all of this, and I made my mistakes. One of the most memorable mistakes is when I had heard somewhere some kind of a statement about if God is for us, who can be against us? And my whole thought process was that's just completely backwards, you know? It's not that God is supposed to be for us. We're supposed to be for God, right? Right? Google was around. I just didn't use it. The guy that I was calling an idiot just so happened to be the Apostle Paul. <laughs> but, you know, because of Christ, God is for you. You've got to let that sink in for just a second. You don't have to do anything to gain his favor. Otherwise, from a couple weeks ago, it'd be gospel plus. Mm -hmm. The gospel is the great exchange. Our sin was placed upon Christ. His righteousness was given to those who would call upon his name. And because of all of that, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the maker of heaven and earth is for you. I need, I need, keep reminding me of that, Dave, mm -hmm. all right? Yeah. 
You know, as you went through this whole process, I mean, talk about bookends, right? So Doug encounters the risen Christ, and, and you know, he starts changing you and whatnot. And, and you're in this sanctification period of your life in the middle, and it hasn't been easy. This whole process of becoming like Jesus hasn't been easy for you. And so how is Christ sustaining you? Just as you kind of talk through some of the difficult things that have happened in your life, even recently. Okay. Well, as my parents can attest, the, uh, the U-turn in my life on that one day, it was shocking to everybody, especially to my wife. God wouldn't let me be a selfish, unmotivated father and husband any longer. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of this now. I wanted to buy in. Well, we became members after uh, visiting a few churches of the uh, church in Polk City that I'd grown up in. I asked the pastor there to disciple me. I became the Iwana game leader. I even taught a Sunday school class after a few years. The church didn't last, though. There were some problems with the church. Uh, there were factions, and there were programs that conflicted with one another, and, you know... Anyway, though, I, I all of a sudden didn't have a church family. I didn't have any support structure around me. And that was just about the right time for my wife to decide that this religious phase had gone on long enough. She found an excuse to kick me out of the home. And I, I honestly shouldn't have left. In retrospect, I should have stayed and, and challenged it. But I, I didn't have anybody there and I was by myself. And that's when Nick Redden over here invited me to Waukee Community Church. Well, I was going to counseling with my wife to return to the home. And her terms, it all went back to four years prior when the God of second chances saved me. And she said that it wasn't fair, that I was the one that changed. She was the one that was still constant. It was my duty to go back to the way things were. I was no longer, these are the terms to return to the house. I can believe whatever I want, but I cannot discuss it in the house. And I couldn't try to lead my family in any way that she thought was too religious. And I shouldn't have agreed to that, but I, I did. I wanted to model Christ with my life as a husband and father, and I didn't think I could do that if I wasn't in the house. And I still want that. Well, so I, I lived under that for the next four years. Other threats, there were insults and accusations, and they only continued and intensified. You know, from the moment of my salvation, my own wife never accepted me. Going to church on any kind of a regular basis was a guaranteed way to start a huge fight, and I had to continue to remind myself that because of Christ, God is for me. My wife rejected me, but my God won't. Well, last summer, the taunts turned into threats, threats of divorce, and so I did seek out an attorney, and he advised me to leave the home, which I did in September. I, I took only my clothes and my books, and I tried to convince Tina to seek counseling with me, which she refused. I also started coming back to Waukee Community Church on a much more regular basis, and I joined as quickly as I could. I wasn't coming at all. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Well, I began to, began to heal over the next month or so, and Pastor Dave here challenged me. He said that I wasn't fighting for my marriage anymore, and that I need to plea for Tina to reconcile with me. Now, was he serious? You know, I couldn't go back to that. He insisted that I needed to fight for a marriage grounded in Jesus, and I was terrified that she would accept, and I was angry that he would make me do it. 
but I'm a disciple under the watch of the eldership here at Waukee Community Church. And so I called her and I arranged a meeting. I asked her to work with me to repair our marriage three times in that meeting, and she rejected me three times. And, and I got to say, there have been times since then that that conversation reminds me, you know, I, I start to think, you know, maybe I did give up. Maybe I just abandoned her. Maybe I just let it go too, e too easy. But thanks to Dave here, I know, no, actually, I begged her three times so that that helps. Well, my, my divorce was finalized on the 1st of February, and it hurt so bad. Even, even now, I have good days and I have bad days. And as I've just discovered recently, my ex-wife rejected me long before I was saved. I've had pretty sleepless nights in the last four weeks since I found out about this. I've had, I think, one, maybe two nights of seven hours or more. It's usually four to five. So I'm working right now on forgiving her and, and just regaining a general trust of others. And that, that includes God right now. You know, I do want to glorify God. I want to be a godly husband and father so bad. But my family's been destroyed. And I'm impatient. I'm so impatient. I want to find the wife that I should have sought out so many years ago. I keep on reminding myself that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And these unwelcome instructions from Pastor Dave and the oversight over here of Thomas Cackler and support of my life group, those have been vital just to keep me from bursting at the seams. God is using these people to help me blossom. And as they persistently point me to Jesus, this growth can only continue. If I can just give you the 10th verse from Ephesians 2 really quick. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So one of the reasons I wanted Doug to share today, because uh, Doug would tell you, you know, he hasn't done everything perfect in this whole thing. And he's made mistakes, uh, but it's between the bookends, you know, like between this, this incarnation and salvation of this work that God did in his heart and this glorification, Doug is in the sanctification process. And I wanted him to share because what our God does is in the God of second chances is he takes this mess that we're in, you know, he just puts it back together. And it's for his glory and our good. And so I... I I mean, it took a lot of courage for this man to stand up here and share everything he did with you today. And, uh, and I'm really grateful that you did that. And we, as your church family, want to pray for you because we want to see God's sanctifying work in your life put together things in a really beautiful and awesome way. And so I'm going to pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Doug. I thank you that you brought him to our family. God, I thank you that your spirit has been working in his heart. I love how... He's, I just see him wrestle with you and, and, and how he does, he's, he's working to be godly, to bring Jesus into account in every area of his life. And I thank you for that, how you're putting things together. God, would you bring down your blessing upon him? Would you let him see some of these beautiful puzzle pieces that you're working together in his life? I pray that his life would bring glory to you in every single way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's just give him a hand and thank him for sharing today.
We went long. Uh, I knew we would go long. I'm sorry. Uh, but thank you for hanging in here. Uh, the, here's how I want to end the message today. Bookends of God's grace in our life. Sanctification. Friends, I want to remind you that the gospel is training us and Jesus is changing us. He's teaching us to renounce things. He's teaching us to embrace things. And he wants to do verse 14. Don't miss this. He wants to do verse 14. He who gave himself for us, Jesus, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The gospel is never just about you. The gospel, our teacher, is training us to be like Jesus, to do good works. Would you stand as we close today? Jesus, today we ask you that you would train us and teach us to renounce and to embrace, to be sanctified and molded and changed by the gospel, the glory of Jesus. Would you root in, out in us any selfish desires? Would you root out the worldly passions that drive us? Would you help us to embrace sanctification? Teach us to live. Teach us to live. Teach us to be transformed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. My benediction for you today is simple in this. As you live in the middle, how are you being sanctified? Now, will you renounce what you want, what God wants you to renounce? Will you boldly embrace what he wants you to embrace? Go with all the blessing and glory of Jesus as you live out the gospel this week. Thanks for being here. You're dismissed.